So tonight's talk is, as I mentioned, on the precepts and refuges. And it's a very endearing talk to me because there's a component part of each of those that speaks to character development. Can you hear me now? You okay? And there's a component part that speaks to freedom. It's a very interesting aspect of Buddhism. Buddhism is equally as concerned uh, about character development. And uh, it's important to understand why that's the case. Because we all carry a certain uh, conditionality within the frame of our bodies and minds. And um, if that conditionality, the way we interact with other people, is... um, is uh, less than safe, if it has some abrasive quality to it, then learning subsides between and during that interaction. And judgment takes over. And part of the range of the Buddha's teaching is to bring along the character within the teaching so that we can hold the space of safety for one another as well as ourselves. I don't think the Buddha was ever concerned about just his own liberation. He looked through vast distances and vast times and he saw a teaching that he could manifest that would be uh, conducive to all people in all times. And to do that, he had to lay out a teaching that guided the moral and ethical principle of people so that they moved into a kinder, more gentle relationship with one another and themselves. That's the character aspect of Buddhism. And that's the aspect in which he says this from the Vinaya Pitaka. Then the Buddha said to his monks, walk over the earth for the blessing of many, for the happiness of many, out of compassion for the world, for the welfare and the blessing and the happiness of all men and all gods for all time. That uh, that, uh, deeply touches me um, because here we are 2,500 years later and um, our lineage is that lineage of him sending his monks and nuns out um, for the welfare of all beings, not just for their own, not just for their own sense of, of uh, personal salvation, but to touch and interface and be an uplifting force for the entire world. And I think that it's as relevant now, perhaps more so, for us to do the same as it was 2,500 years ago. As I have mentioned and feel very deeply that we're now to a kind of a crisis point in our species where if we don't invite a deeper and richer dimension of consciousness, then I don't know how long this species will perpetuate itself. Certainly a hundred years may be the outside edge. I used to think that when the politicians understood what they were doing to the generations hence, and they considered their children within that consideration, they would stop and really consider what laws, 
they are setting in motion and how that would affect future generations. But it doesn't seem to be so. It seems just more of the same. So then it's up to each one of us to set our own course of action. And I think that's very much what the spirit of this talk is about. The spirit of the refuges and the precepts. Now, if Buddhism was only about character development, that would be fine and good. It would allow a um, interaction and an interfacing with a uh, evolving sense of kindness and gentleness, which certainly would have its own effects upon the world, but they wouldn't be from a different dimension of consciousness that ended all conflict and struggle completely. For even within the dimension of character development, there is conflict that ensues within that development. For when you have an idea of what or how you want to direct your life and how you want to evolve in the course of that life, you will inevitably be in conflict with those aspects of mind which will come that are in conflict to the idealization of the way you want your character to go. And that will inevitably cause a shadow effect within that character development, which will ultimately lead to some struggle, conflict, and perhaps violence. So it's not just character development that the Buddha was speaking about, but also the very intimation of freedom itself. So when we look at a teaching, a body of teaching, we have to consider both elements, the relative and the absolute. To throw away the relative is to throw away the uh, suffering and the conflict and the struggle that's on this level and to sort of say, you know, I can do anything to anyone because I'm beyond that. To throw away the absolute is to stay only within that struggle and to have no perspective or dimension outside of it. So when we look at the teaching, we have to look at both sides. Now, unfortunately, I think that our particular tradition, Theravadan Buddhism, puts a little too much weight in character development and not enough uh, weight on freedom. Some of the other traditions have different proportions of weight between those two feet. But I think both of them, it takes two legs to stand, and I think both of them are extraordinarily important. So when we talk about a teaching like the Ten Paramis, what we've talked about, we can see generosity and uh, all of the different Paramis, patience, etc., as both being a character that I'm going to develop, trying to be more patient, working towards that, as well as features, um, perspectives of what absolute reality looks like when you are free. There is patience. There is generosity. There is um, ethics, ethical conduct. So, when we talk about the precepts, when we talk about uh, refuges, I want to talk about both of those components. My own tendency is to put more emphasis on the freedom because uh, character in some ways um, uh, is heart-centered in just coming together. Once we decide to come together as a sangha 
and we decide that we're looking at what it means to be free within that coming together, then the heart comes out and plays through that interaction and character is developed in a positive way. So part of my faith has always been that just bringing people together develops character in the right way, as long as they're coming together in the direction of more truth, more understanding. So, I love this quote. This is a quote from John Tarrant, who is a a Zen teacher. He says, Character likes slowness and desires us to wait. The development of character and integrity becomes our work, and listening to the stillness becomes our practice. In these ways, we align ourselves with the mystery that is always present, and discover what is being asked of us on the deepest level. So we come together with integrity, but we don't forget the stillness. For the stillness keeps the mystery relevant and in touch and connected. And the character development allows the safety and relaxation for each of us to be able to be in each other's presence without defensiveness, without fear arising. That's what the heart of Sangha is supposed to represent. Now we're all on our way with different degrees of inward struggle, different degrees of sophistication and practice history, different levels of understanding. And we don't cast anyone out because they don't understand what we understand. We bring everyone into the fold and work with them, kind of like, have you ever seen one of these machines that uh, smooth rocks? You put these jagged rocks into a barrel and it just tumbles for several hours. And then lo and behold, you take them out and they're all these extraordinarily smoothed and polished rocks. That's sort of what the Sangha is like. We polish off from one another through the practice. And I love the fact that both the refuges and precepts have at their heart of hearts a sense of safety, a sense of of confidence, allows us in moments when we don't feel we're up to the task, when we are hit with a sense of inadequacy, I can't do this, this is too hard, that we just turn and see the 2,500 years of lineage that's behind us. We're not in this alone. The American Indians used to find places and dance upon places that their ancestors danced upon throughout the centuries. And they said when they would dance upon those sacred places of their ancestors, that their ancestors were literally, not figuratively, literally dancing with them. So too, when we sit down, when we make an attempt, when we have a heartfelt, sincere action towards making contact, towards understanding, towards opening our heart, we dance upon the lineage of 2,500 years of people doing the same thing. 
And sometimes you can feel the empowerment of it. Now, I don't want to go too into... This is not woo-woo stuff. All right? <laughs> Somebody said, well, that's a little... No, I mean, I, it's not to me. It's not to me. Where do you... That display of power continues to manifest. In the same way, they say, they say that there's still the echo of the Big Bang. That 13 billion years ago, there was this cosmic explosion that gave birth to all the stars and planets. And that echo can still be heard to this day. It carries forth. When you set a, set a direction as powerful as this one, it carries forth. The lineage carries forth. And it can be a confidence. You're not in this alone. With the, however you suffer, however difficult it might be, you have a way. And you have countless people behind you that have practiced and proven that way. And like the hundredth monkey with each person asserting their intention and rediscovering the truth, it becomes easier for the next person to do just that. So in fact, we are much more connected. My personal belief, we are much more connected energetically in lineage than we like to think of ourselves just by saying, oh yes, you know, I'm in the Buddhist lineage and that was a historical reference and standard to who I am today. No, it's more than that. It's, it's current in some way that is mysterious and powerful, but true. And that can be a tremendous confidence builder. We have the force of countless minds working towards basic warmth of heart, towards freedom and understanding it's not a small thing to join in in that endeavor. So the refuges and the precepts, when we say them, when we say the precepts, it's a, again, it, it depends upon the sincerity with which they are taken. But don't you want to have a life of non-harm? Isn't that... I mean, do you want to hurt? Isn't that in your cells now? You see, the sincerity is not me thinking that I should. It's in the cells of the body. It has its own momentum now. And yes, we have to remind ourselves countless times to come back into that momentous driving force, but it's available to us. It's present. My teacher once told me, said the Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma. And I thought, sounds like God. He says, no, it's not about that. He said, you'll feel it. You just feel it. As you assert your need to know and to face the truth, there's a kind of way that there's a a protection that's established. Things, 
It doesn't mean that your life is without inconvenience, obviously. It doesn't mean that you'll stop growing old. It means something else. And you have to intuit what it means. But it's there. And perhaps many of you have already felt it. So the descent of the wise into our midst is what we do when we take refuge. We ask for it. And in terms of that character development, we're asking, we're aligning ourselves to a teaching. We're saying, okay, the historical Buddha, he wasn't a god. He was a human being. And he plummeted the depth of his awareness, his consciousness, and understood. And he set something in motion, tremendously powerful, that is the reason we gather. He's not a person that we blindly believe in, that we pray to, although it's done throughout much of the Buddhist countries because they're, they've made it's easier not to practice Buddhism it's easier to worship the Buddha it's easier not to be a real Christian in heart but go to church every and so it becomes a church that's not what we're doing here we're not becoming a church so this man 2,500 years ago, set something in motion. And if you start delving into his teaching, which I hope you do, far beyond what I offer, I dare say I've never discovered a single phrase that is written that doesn't coincide with the experience that I can be having if I so direct my mind. Now, if that doesn't establish confidence in the teaching, if that doesn't establish confidence in the direction that this practice is going to take, because what do I think? Just because I haven't experienced it, it's not true? When everything up until that level of my understanding has been? When he talks about an unconditioned state of complete contentment, and joy and aliveness and love. Well, maybe I don't know what that is. But does that mean that I can't have the confidence in my practice that it's there? It's there for me. I know that. When I take refuge in the Buddha, I know that. How can it not be so? And then we gain, it's like a songbird that comes in winter. And we don't know what it's doing there, but we hear its song. And all around is the bleak, bare trees. And there's the stillness. And in the worst situational circumstances, 
can be our finest hour, our finest moment. And that breeds enormous steadiness that we feed on each other. Those of you who have practiced years are like beacons for the hungry ghosts of those who haven't. Hungry for what many of you already have or know or have seen. People gather around that, not around the person. Nobody came for the Buddha, Siddhartha. Everybody came for the embodiment of the Absolute. And so through the character, through the personalization of the Buddha, you honor that which is fundamental to us all. It's not giving away our empowerment. It's being empowered. To know that freedom is accessible and available not just to one man 2,500 years ago, but because we are alive, that potential is present. Not present in the future tense, not after 20 years of working diligently, but present now if we have the eyes to see. If we can shake ourselves out of our slumber. And so taking refuge in the Dharma is doing just that. Taking refuge in what is real as opposed to the dreamlike space that most of us reside in most of the time. Taking refuge in the Dharma is being willing to face reality. Being willing to face it. Why? Because I can't stand not facing it. It's much more difficult not to face it. The inevitable conflict and struggle that results in not facing it. Not because I'm some kind of a hero. Because it hurts too much not to do it. And many of us need to have more awareness of where we hurt in order to understand that simple fact of where that hurt comes from. It comes not from reality, but from the dreamlike space that we place on top of reality. What we do to reality through our manipulation and distortion of perception. And so to take refuge in the Dharma is to say, enough of mind, enough of my thought. What is real here? What is true here? If anything, it's hard to read the paper these days or to see the news or to hear the news because it's so full of the perpetuation of the same dimension of mind that human beings have lived on since time immemorial. What is true here? 
and the majority that go along with it. Drunken. Just layers of drunken ignorance. To be able to say, what is true? Is this true? Is to come and take refuge again in the Dharma. To establish it front and center. The Buddha said, he who sees the Dharma sees the Buddha. So the refuge of taking refuge in the Buddha meets the Dharma when we're willing to face what is true. There's the Buddha. You going to face him? Or is is he too wrathful in this moment? Well, I'll face him later. You see, it seems paradoxical that Buddhism is a development of character and freedom is seen through character. But we carry that paradox with us. For we honor... the ignorance. We honor the disturbance. We honor the troubling pain of our neighbor and ourselves. Not with a dismissive wave of the hand that says, have a life, get a life. But with a caring heart that is inclusive, I wonder if that's any different. When the Buddha said, if you see the Dharma, you see the Buddha, you see himself. Is that any different when Christ said, those of you who help the poorest and most desperate among us, help me. To take refuge in the Dharma. take refuge in the Dharma. And they take refuge in the Buddha. Not just the historical person, or that's something that may inspire a great deal of heartfelt sincerity. But in our ability to be aware in this moment, our ability to love in this moment, our ability to care in this moment, that's the expression, that's the Buddha being manifested in this moment. A moment of caring, a moment, not what we care about, not the object of our caring, not what we're aware of, not where our mind connects, but the fact of connection, the fact of love, love itself, not the object. That's not what it's about. It's about the manifestation 
of those qualities. And each of us have the ability to love. Each of us have the ability to connect. Each of us have the ability to place our attention upon. And we are walking. As soon as we're willing to do that, we're walking towards connectedness. If you don't connect, there's no interconnectedness. How can there be? How can there be interconnectedness without connecting? As soon as we're willing to connect, then we, of course, we have to work with all the stuff that gets in between all of the emotional and psychological turmoil and projection and defense mechanism that gets in between that connection. But if we're willing to work with that, the connection is there. Interconnection has already been made in our ability to attend. In our ability to love. Because love doesn't happen in abstraction. It happens in real time. And there's the Buddha. How can we doubt it? How can we doubt that this thing can manifest? That that potential is in us. When I can feel my hand, when I can connect my breath, when I can see what it is that I'm bringing, when I, the baggage I'm bringing to reality, when I can see that, because I see it. Now, I may not be willing to give that baggage up. I may feel like I want to continue with that baggage for a long period of time. And so I just hunker down and do it. And that means that I'm going to be pretty miserable. But I'm willing to be miserable because I don't want to give it up. That's okay. See, there's no rush. Character likes slowness and desires us to wait. You can't, we can't do it forever because the burden's too great. At some point, you just have to release. And then what do you release into? The warm bath of our own potential. The relaxation of connection. And all I had to give up was that which blocked and defended that connection. That's all. Everything that seems so disturbing was just my strategy to maintain separation and distance. If I'm willing to give that up, which is the only thing we ever have to give up, I lose the struggle and gain my potential. That's what it is. But many of us would rather stay struggling because we're so enamored with it. We kind of... We feel ennobled by it. And plus we get attention through it. Maybe it's we have to pay for it through a therapist, but at least we get some attention. And without that, the fear of being in real isolation. I mean, if I give up that, who would pay attention to me at all if I didn't have problems? If I didn't have a drama to play through? Who would even want 
to know me. That's our worst fear. You see, what we have to trust is that a warm heart is sufficient. And that's what the Sangha, to take refuge in the Sangha, is to take refuge in warm-heartedness, which is the manifestation of the Buddha, which is a product of seeing reality and taking refuge in the Dharma. So the three come together. Taking refuge in the Sangha. Okay. The community of people who are pulling our... Each of us are pulling our hair out, trying to oh, understand this thing... And that's why monks are bald. (laughs) (laughs) And slowly, the sense of being able to relax together. Well, I don't like such a big group. we meet there and sometimes our energy is low and we come anyway we just come because then you're with a group of 200 people and the whole energy raises just from suddenly you're right back on track and you don't feel like coming you don't want to come you feel but you come and I'm not saying come here you just get into a song and get into a group of people that invite the elevation the raising of the energy energetically so that I'm back on it again. I'm back up there again. Now we're, now we're back on it again. And that's what's taking refuge in the community. Inviting a greater sense of interconnection. Trusting Yes, we're still laboring under a lot of judgment, but we're at least moving in the right direction. That's a lot safer environment that people who aren't moving in that direction and are embedded in their own personal identities. That's not a very trusting environment. And there's a whole world. It's amazing to me sometimes. I look at some of the news things and there's a whole world out there that I don't even touch anymore not because I'm trying to avoid it it's just that when there's a certain sincerity I have to be careful here you become it's not that you it's just that there's a whole sense of of weightedness and heaviness that that, that you just don't interrelate to I mean, criminal, you know, the, not, not that you don't serve them, but you just don't get pulled down into that. You just, you don't get, sub, your mind doesn't get subverted into that kind of thinking, so you don't join them at that level of complaint and that level of harsh judgment and fear and all of that kind of heaviness. This, this, it just doesn't touch you anymore. And you're available 
to work with people who are touched that way, but the mind doesn't, it's not a leaded weight. There's buoyancy. And then we bring in not an addition, but an alignment with these three refuges. We bring in the preceptual living. We bring in ethical conduct. Ethical conduct. So what is ethical conduct? The precepts. Preceptual life have to do with all this. Well, at first, it's character development. It's like, okay, I'm getting ready to swat the fly. Just let this fly live. Refrain. Refrain from it. Consider life to its advantage, not to your advantage. Just consider it. And if you have to swat the fly, then swat it, but do it consciously. And then you begin to see that as you, be, as you align yourself to the precepts, to perceptual living, it's not a moralistic heaviness, although if it's only character development, it can go that way. It can become the heavy hand of moralism. But when you begin to touch the direction that the precepts point, they point towards interconnection. They point towards wise view. They show you when your perceptions are online or offline from that direction. And therefore, the basic sense of not wanting to harm someone becomes instilled in us. It's like, somebody wrote me an email, and the person might be in this room, but I loved it. They said they were ballet students once, and they practiced and practiced and practiced ballet movement. And then they had their big chance on stage, and the teacher said, listen, forget all everything you've learned. Just go out and dance and have fun and enjoy yourself. And the movements ingrained in the cells danced themselves in the stage. That's how the precepts work. The precepts are not rote memorization, but become a part of the very way you see things. It's not like you have to protect yourself from hurting someone. The thought does not arise to hurt someone. To retaliate to be vengeful, to steal. And so what happens with the mind when it is living in a perceptual direction, preceptual direction, is that it loses the paranoid response of dishonesty. It's not looking around to see whether it's going to get caught in its lie, in its behavior, in its inauthenticity. There's no sense of trying to protect yourself. So there's an open, so everything's open. Everything's open space. Come, everybody come. I, and somebody calls you, did you mean to, and they bring their own stuff. No. Because the intention to harm is not there you don't have anyone to hide from. 
There's no doors that need to be locked. Figuratively. It's all open space. And it makes you, there's a lightness that comes. Because it's not devious. There's no quality to this teaching that's devious. Oh, I've got him now. I wonder how much, you know, it's not like that. <laughs> it, because as you become lighter, you also become freer. And as you become less paranoid, you begin to see that any sense of self-aggrandizement is meaningless. In fact, it's worse than that. It's painful. And through our speech and our actions, we constantly want to be validated. And that constant sense of needing to be validated causes an inauthentic perception of life in an internal and externally. Because when we in need, we're dependent upon. And when we're dependent upon, there has to be distortion. And then we begin to really get a sense of what it means in the deepest to take refuge in the Buddha. To take refuge in the Dharma. To take refuge in the Sangha. Not adherence to some tradition or belief system or embellished cult. But freedom of being. So that you're never without the songbird. No matter what. That above all else, the moment of stillness, the intimation Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.